Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. On behalf of the Graduate Council and the Academic Senate, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you today to the first of two Hitchcock lectures to be given by Dr. Norman Myers. The Hitchcock professorship is one of the earliest endowments at the University of California, Berkeley. It was developed from a bequest of property made in 1885 by Dr. Charles M. Hitchcock, a San Francisco physician with a long interest in education. As stated in his will, the purpose of the bequest was to establish a professorship at the University of California for the purpose of giving free lectures on scientific and practical subjects. The fund was allowed to accumulate until 1909 when the Hitchcock lectures were instituted with the inaugural lecture by the distinguished chemist from the University of Chicago, Julius Steiglitz. The university received an additional gift in 1930 from Dr. Hitchcock's daughter, Mrs. Lily Hitchcock Coit, best known as a donator of funds to build Coit Tower in San Francisco. Mrs. Coit directed that the donator of funds directed that the professorship made possible by this enlarged endowment be designated the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Professorship in memory of her parents. The great extent to which this endowment has enabled the faculty, staff, and students the university and the general public as well to become closely acquainted with distinguished scholars from throughout the academic world is evident by the list in your programs of those who have served as Hitchcock lecturers and Hitchcock professors. We are proud to see the long tradition of the Hitchcock professorship so eminently upheld by a scholar of the stature of Dr. Myers. Dr. Myers is one of the world's most respected and influential authorities on environmental science and has a unique career as a consultant and author in the arena of international environmental problems. His initial work, I keep thinking this mic is doing strange things. <clears throat> so, I keep trying to tune myself to it, so I'm not sure it's working. His initial work was concerned with the loss of animal species in Africa. His focus then moved to the plight of the tropical forests, and in the late 80s, he began to explore the political and economic consequences of the world's environmental problems. As the originator of the biodiversity hotspot strategy, Dr. Myers has been an extremely important figure in alerting the world to the loss of biodiversity, generating over 300 million for conservation activities. The influence of Dr. Meyer's work may also be seen in the increasingly common requirement that rigorous environmental impact studies be conducted as a step in the approval process for development projects backed by international lenders or aid givers. Norman Myers is a fellow at Green College, Oxford University. He has written more than 250 papers in professional journals and authored 15 books. His honors include the Volvo Environment Prize, the United Nations Sasakawa Environment Prize, and election as a foreign fellow of our National Academy of Sciences. His standing in the environmental field has resulted in a number of important consultancies with, for example, the World Bank, the United Nations, the European Commission, the United States Department of State, NASA, and a number of private companies. Last but not least, we are very proud that he is a Berkeley PhD and, one, and in fact the second of the small but very select group who received this degree under our interdisciplinary PhD program.
Without further delay, I'm pleased to present to you Dr. Myers, whose lecture topic today is Environment, Population, Consumption, and Sustainable Development, the Great Challenges of Our Time. Thank you very much, Dean Cerny, for your kind words of invitation, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I hope this microphone, which is in my pocket, is working okay? And you're receiving loud and clear? No problems with my foreign accent, I hope? Okay. Oh, okay. Well, let's try, let, let's try it like that. Oh, I was very glad to hear you, sir, uh, refer to the fact that I have an interdisciplinary background. Uh, I deal in all, all kinds of areas. Uh, in fact, I'm working right now on a project with the National Academy of Sciences looking at the future course of evolution and how what we do or don't do in the next few decades may degrade and deplete certain, bio, certain basic processes of evolution. And conversely, just for a bit of variety, uh, I and my partner have been working on uh, perverse subsidies, a thoroughly economic and political issue, uh, which doesn't quite have the time frame of five million years. We'll be hearing more about these uh, perverse subsidies later on in this lecture. And I would like to emphasize that while I'm delighted uh, to be back on dear old Sproul Plaza, uh, I would like to pay special tribute to one particular professor uh, with whom I worked well, way back in the early 1970s when I was a graduate student here, one Arnold Schultz uh, of Forestry and Conservation or Natural Resources. And he it was who taught me that interdis interdisciplinary studies means uh, acquiring the capacity to look sideways, to think around corners. And that was epitomized by a midterm that he once set us. We had to write three essays on three different uh, topics. And the first topic read, is this a question? <laughs> and we had to write an essay on that. And I, <laughs> I could hardly believe what I was seeing. And I chewed up my pen for a while and then started to crank out some stuff and knocked out uh, three pages went on to the next one. And as we were going out of the exam and handing in our papers, I noticed that a woman student sitting next to me had written, in response to this first question, she'd written just a single line. And when we got outside the hall, I said to her, what on earth did you write? And she said she wrote, if this is a question, then this is an answer. Period. <laughs> <laughs> and she got an A and I didn't. <laughs> great, great days I've had at the uh, great UCB, and I'm delighted to come uh, while wearing a hat as a, as a Hitchcock professor. Good afternoon to you again, and uh, thank you, Dean Cerny, and your uh, Hitchcock committee colleagues for selecting me for this uh, signal honor. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm going to talk uh, about environment and population and consumption, all within a thematic uh, context of what we call sustainable development. To start off with, I'll show a few slides demonstrating how uh, the environment is closely related, intimately related with the economy and demonstrating also that what is good for the environment is generally good for the environment. So, sorry, what is good for the environment is generally good for the uh, economy. You know, we still have political leaders who say, oh yes, the environment is important, but we must look out for the real priorities, and that is the economy. 
and let's get the economy fixed up and then if there's a bit of cash left over then we can uh, take care of the environment that to me is rubbish I hope to show uh, several illustrations demonstrating that what is good for the environment is generally good, good for the economy and then we'll go on uh, to look at two uh, crucial factors of the environmental cause one is the increase in human numbers and the other is the increase in human activities uh, labeled uh, consumption and we'll see uh, how far those are really having a big adverse impact upon the environmental cause and hence upon our uh, economic cause and what, what we can do about it and then uh, f well finally we shall have a concluding se sequence of uh, slides indicating some policy responses that is uh, what substantively we, we can do about it so that's the uh, extent and the character of what I have to say and let's have some let's have the lights out and we'll have a look at uh, some slides first of all this is actually my logo <coughs> just to remind ourselves that the uh, biosphere is one unitary planetary ecosystem as represented by these green arrows going around the outside and clouds and so on um, exemplified by the thought that the winds carry no passports uh, acid rain in, the, in Washington state can head over the border into British Columbia and from Ontario can come into New England but more significantly if the Indians want as they propose to build their 100 million refrigerators using CFCs that will deplete everybody's ozone layer including that over California and if the Chinese want to keep on fueling their uh, development processes uh, with coal then that will produce immense amounts of carbon dioxide emissions and that will bring on global warming for everybody right around the world uh, so uh, environmentally one unitary biosphere uh, we try to run this uh, earth and this world in 200 little management packages that we call nation states as reflected by these uh, broken arrows with a dollar sign uh, and they are not nearly so collaborative or cooperative as is required by the, na by the nature of the situation now uh, I mentioned earlier on that, that uh, political leaders tend to rather downplay the environment and suggest it's not all that so important as compared with the economy fortunately uh, a couple of years ago some economists in this country a team of economists and ecologists got together and they uh, tried to <coughs> come up with uh, some very cautious estimates of what various environmental goods and services are, are worth for instance uh, timber that is uh, natural forest timber fish from the ocean watershed functions soil climate biodiversity and so on and so on and so on put them all together and they reckon that these environmental goods and services are worth somewhere around 33 trillion dollars per year the range was actually from about 20, 20 trillion to 45 trillion this is a medium figure 30, 33 trillion more than the world's economy of 29 trillion quite quite significantly more so global natural product is greater than global national product which came as a big surprise to the political leaders and policymakers who supposed that uh, environmental goods and services are, are not really worth very much at all and here I have a table of the economic cost of environmental damage in 1996 and the second country down is the United States you are losing 4% of your G annual GMP to environmental factors like grand scale pollution of many sorts also soil erosion, over harvesting of fisheries, over logging of forests so on so on so on 4% and we're talking about uh, quite big money 262 billion dollars you know your Pentagon budget is only about 220 billion dollars today 
So that figure is roughly twice as much as a federal deficit. We really are talking quite big money here. <clears throat> Let's just uh, go, go, go back to that one a moment. I was struck last week, while I was in your country, reading the newspapers about the election campaign and how candidates of every stripe and uh, description were urging the cause of the economy. Uh, when pollsters took a uh, reading of the ten most important items that was preoccupying voters, the environment didn't even make it into the top ten. But, but if, there's a, if there's a leakage of the economy of, of that scale, that must surely serve as a drag on economic vitality, shall we say, translating into higher interest rates, higher inflation, higher mortgage, higher job losses. And those are precisely the issues that preoccupy J John and Jane Doe's citizens over breakfast cornflakes every morning, and rightly so. But they just don't make the connection with uh, the source of, of some of the uh, economic uh, slowdown, and that, that is uh, the environment. And here we have a comparison of uh, per capita GNP, that's that line in the graph there, uh, which as you might expect uh, since 1950 has been going onwards and upwards. Slight blip there with the first oil price shock, slight blip there with the second one, but on the whole, uh, steadily climbing toward the ceiling. But down here we have what is called an index of sustainable economic welfare, uh, showing that uh, the, the peak arrived in the mid-1970s and on the whole has since been declining. Well, why, why that gap? is because of uh, environmental activities which are counted as pluses for the economy but in fact are decidedly minuses. Consider for instance the Exxon oil spill a few years ago. The cleanup activities were in the order of three billion dollars and the way the, the economy, the way the GNP is calculated those cleanup activities, three billion dollars, were reckoned to be just as valid, just as beneficial to the community, to society, as teaching a child or growing a field of wheat. Whereas in fact the cleanup activities were undertaken only to get society or the economy back to where it was before the damage occurred. Those three billion dollars should have been taken away from the total for the economy rather than added on. That is why there's this big uh, divergence. Uh, also added in there uh, is the crime factor. Plainly enough, if, if which God forbid, you go out on the street this evening and you get mugged, well, the police will come running and uh, you'll be maybe hauled off to the hospital and the doctors will do this and the nurses will do that. And all those activities are counted as valid economic activities added on to GNP, whereas in fact they're only getting you back to where you were before you were mugged. And if somebody is caught for the mugging, then there are all the costs of the court processes and maybe a few years in jail and so on. All those are added on to GMP for all the world as if, as if the count is a plus. It should be taken away from GMP. And a further slide, uh, more, more of a macro or overview uh, slide, this one, uh, ask, asking how far uh, do we really understand what goes on in the US economy and how much of it is truly beneficial. You see, your economy is notionally worth about $7.3 trillion right now. But between $2 trillion and $3.5 trillion contribute nothing worthwhile. E.g., the Superfund sites and nuclear cleanup uh, costs. Again, costs undertaken merely in order to repair past damage. That doesn't get you really further forward in a net sense. That's half a trillion dollars in itself. Crime, almost half a trillion dollars. Highway accidents, $260 billion. Auto exhaust damage, 
to crops and forests, they, so and so on. Lawsuits. You know, you're a pretty litigious country. Lawsuits, a third of a billion. Energy inefficiency, health problems from pollution and obesity treatment. <laughs> Can you believe that you spend $70 billion a year, there's 270 million of you, $70 billion on obesity. Put all that together and that comes to 2.25 trillion or at least 8,500 per American. That is a, a measure of how far the economy that does serve as, a, as an adequate measure of how you are doing. So let's now move on uh, and have a look at the population situation. Uh, we could have, well, put it this way, there's still a great deal we can do to reduce uh, population growth main, almost entirely in developing countries. There's some in your country and some in my country, we'll come back come to that in a few moments. There's a great deal where we can do to relieve uh, population growth. Uh, let's have a look. So first of all, a table to uh, assess the impact of sheer growth in human numbers on some vital natural resources. Here we have 1990 and 2010 population. Uh, 1990 was just under 5.3 billion, and by 2010 it'll be just over 7 billion. That's an increase of 33%. Still growing quite fast. And they have a look at the impact on the fish catch, uh, which we will grow in absolute terms from 85 tons to 102 tons, expected to grow like that. That's an, ab an absolute increase of 20%. But be because simply because of increase in human mouths, the amount per person will decline by 10%. Absolute increase of 20% declines 10%. Then we have cropland, uh, absolute increase of 5%, but because of population growth, decline of 21%, and so on and so on with, with all those. That is the capacity of sheer increase in human numbers to bear down on vital natural resources. But that table, as I'm sure some of you uh, sharp minds of the great UCB will have uh, uh, picked up here, this table tells the truth, but it does not tell the whole truth. It uh, makes no mention of the role of technology. You see, cropland, uh, uh, an absolute increase of 5% and a de decline per person of 21%, that would imply, would it not, that there'll be less food available per person. But supposing that we learn how to grow more food per hectare, as we did from 1950 to 1985, we increased uh, the amount of food available for, uh, by uh, 3.5 times in just 35, 2.5 times in just uh, 35 years. It was an extraordinary accomplishment, thanks primarily to the technologies of the Green Revolution. For sure that there were some problems associated, but that does indicate the scope for technology to help us out of the fix which will be indicated in those figures. Uh, just going back a moment. How many people do we have on Earth? Uh, well, almost six billion. And one could suppose that of those six billion, the number of uh, sexually active people would be, well, how about 2.5 billion? That about fits, doesn't it? Uh, sexually active people in the world, 2.5 billion. Sexual couplings per night, 100 million. Now, when I was doing my research for that figure, <laughs> I didn't inquire what goes on by day. That might have bumped up the figure quite a bit. But anyway, next one. Conceptions resulting 900,000 from that, 900,000. 
more important is this bit in brackets. It shouldn't be in brackets at all. It should be surrounded by neon flashing lights. It is so crucial. Half, un that's half the conception is unplanned and one quarter unwanted. And before we start saying to ourselves, well, that's all the, the people in the developing countries who can't get their act together. It's not, a, it's not at all because of that. There's a good number of unplanned and unwanted pregnancies. Uh, the first one will be about uh, one in ten, and that one might be no, that one will be about one in five, and that one will be about one in ten in my own country. And yet Britain tries to assert that it is a thoroughly advanced and developed nation, and we know what we're doing, and we plan to this. And yet we still have large numbers of unplanned and unwanted uh, pregnancies. In fact, Britain ranks number one in Western Europe, among the developed nations of Western Europe, uh, in, in terms of this. And the number one nation of all the developed nations is, guess what, it's the dear old United States. I'm going to be making a few critical comments about your country, ladies and gentlemen, uh, but, but, I want, but I would like to emphasize that this is my 84th visit to your country. I have much esteem for your country. I greatly enjoy coming here. So when I make some critical remarks, it's because I, I sometimes wonder a little bit about, about some of the things that you get up to. Anyway, well, what can we do about this uh, population issue? To repeat, there's a great deal we, we could do. For sure, we dropped the football in spectacular fashion 20 years ago when we could have achieved twice as much for only half the cost. We still have time to do a very great deal. Have a look here. 2050. Uh, projected uh, global population of about 8 billion. Actually, the UN is now talking about more like 9 billion, but let's say it's 8 billion. And if we were to tackle this uh, red stuff, uh, then we could reduce the ultimate global population by at least 1 billion people, provided we address the problem uh, in indicated by unmet demand for family planning. What do we mean by unmet demand? Well, it is that demand on the part of 160 million couples in developing countries, that's one couple in five, who possess all the motivation in the world to have no more children, but they lack the, the birth control facilities to put that wish into action. Now those people should have their needs met, even if there was no population problem, whatever. They should have their needs met on humanitarian grounds. Any couple should be enabled to have as many or as few children as they want. You might say, well, if it makes sense on demographic grounds, reducing the ultimate population by one billion, and it makes sense on human rights grounds, what's the problem? It must be too expensive. It is the opposite of too expensive. To equip a couple for one year costs about $20. 160 million couples in question do a bit of arithmetic to that. And at the Cairo Population Conference, a in big international conference on population in 1994, uh, the rich nations, your nation, my nation, Germany, Japan, and so on, agreed to increase their funding support for family planning uh, activities in developing countries from one quarter to one third. The developing countries themselves uh, pick up the rest of the tab, and they also are going to increase their, their uh, financial contributions. Uh, and the, the increased cost for an American taxpayer of lifting the the financial subvention from one quarter to one third. The increased cost per American taxpayer would have been, wait for it, the equivalent of one beer a year. That's all it would have been, a couple of dollars. Well, since 1994, 
the rich nations have decided they've never been poorer and they can't really afford an increased burden on the taxpayers of that order. Your country, my country, we've gone back on our pledges at the Cairo conference in 1994, so have Germany, Japan, we're dropping the football in even more spectacular fashion. There was an immense, uh, immense chance to turn a profound problem into a glorious opportunity, and we've foregone it. Anyway, uh, let's move on and have a look at a success story. Kenya. Kenya has been uh, a country that establishes all kinds of records in the population field. In the 1970s, they had achieved, if that's the right word, an average family size of over nine children. And their population growth rate was about 4.3% per year, meaning the population was doubling every 15 years. Meaning that just in order to keep up with the game, they had to produce twice as many schools and hospital beds and houses and roads and jobs, twice as much food for twice as much of whatever every 15 years. Even the Swiss, with their capacity for meticulous planning, couldn't manage that kind of, that scale of a challenge every 15 years. So the people of Kenya uh, decided they wanted to reduce their family size, and as quickly as they could, the government uh, uh, went along with, with all this, uh, and principally, uh, the government uh, tried to get many more girls into school, and to ensure that when the girls came out of school, uh, they would have uh, an acceptable job to go to. There's still a long way to go, but the government made a lot of progress, and the government also uh, expanded its network of family planning clinics, and the result is quite extraordinary. Since 1980, contraceptive use has risen more than threefold. That's a record. No other country has got near that in such a short space of time. Better still, fertility has fallen from 8.3 children to 5.4 children. That's a decline of almost three children in such a short space of time. Another record. Best of all, desired family size has fallen from 7.2 to 4.7 children. There'll be some better news still, as I'm sure some of you have uh, discerned in these statistics. If Kenya were to take care of this slack that still remains in the system, you see that the actual family size is 5.4 children, desired family size is 4.7 children. That means an awful lot of parents in Kenya are still having more children than they want. If they were supplied with the family planning facilities, then the fertility rate would decline still further and the population growth rate would decline still further. An awful lot of potential there to, for Kenya to, to be doing still better. But it's still a success story. And now let's have a look at, I don't know what you call it, uh, the opposite of a success story. And it concerns, <clears throat> here we go, your country. And in 1995, as you may know, uh, Congress slashed your foreign aid budgets by 17%, but actually cut the family planning budget by 35%, twice as much. You might say, well, why twice as much? Why should family planning get hit hard like that? Well, it's because the, because of pressure on Congress from the pro-life people. Now, I do not want to get into a debate about pro-life and pro-choice. The pro-life people are welcome to their own opinion. This is democracy and so on. But they should have thought a little bit more carefully before trying to impose their views on Congress in the way they did. Along the way, the saving was $191 million in 1995. We can reckon it's about 200 million American taxpayers. So the saving per taxpayer was $1. Big deal, big saving. Let's have a look at some concealed costs of that saving. Developing world couples losing protection, almost $7 million. 
Additional unwanted pregnancies, 4 million. Additional unwanted births, almost 2 million. And here's the choker. Additional abortions, 1.6 million. That is precisely the opposite of what the pro-life people would ever have intended. They did not appreciate that when they leaned on Congress to that extent, they would automatically, effectively, no matter how unwittingly, induce additional abortions in, in developing countries. It's a dreadful situation, it's tragic, it's awful to think about, but those pro-life people did not heed the dictum of the economist or the ecologist you can never do only one thing. Now, let's move on. This is the way the population situation is sometimes uh, perceived by people in the rich nations. It's an unkind way of uh, perceiving it and, it, and it's also rather unrealistic because the developing nations are almost all in agreement that the boat is, is getting too full. That's why 95% uh, of governments and 95% of their citizens want to reduce their fertility rate. That's, you know, the debate about that is now history. But at the same time, the developing nations would say, well, wait a minute, the operative phrase here is this last one, self-control of all kinds, in all directions. It's not just a case of how many uh, extra people we're putting into the overcrowded boat, but it's also a case of what lifestyle do those people aspire to? What level of affluence would they like to enjoy? And while attaining that affluence, how many crucial natural resources will they consume? And how much pollution and other forms of waste will they cause along the way? Well, let's just have a look at the population uh, question from that expanded perspective with regard to consumption. A few years ago, I did some arithmetic with regard to my own country, Britain and Bangladesh on the population front. Britain's annual population growth rate is 0.2%. And you might think, as, as I reflected, well, that's so low, that's, that's nothing, no need to think twice about it. After all, it produces an extra 118,000 people. We have 60 million people in Britain, another 120,000 or so, that that's not, not worth thinking about. By contrast, Bangladesh's annual population growth rate is 2.0%, producing an extra 2.4 million people. That is 10 times more than that, and that figure is 20 times more than that. So isn't it plain who has a massive population problem? But each Briton, by virtue of our profligate use of fossil fuels and the amount of carbon dioxide emissions that causes, each Briton produces 50 times more carbon than does each additional Bangladeshi meaning that population growth in Britain is causing two and a half times more carbon emissions than does population growth in Bangladesh. So whatever sort of population problem Bangladesh might have, don't we in Britain have an even greater population growth problem? And yet, can you believe that we have never, that we have no population policy whatever? We've never even thought about it. We have never once determined to have a broad-scale public debate over a year or two about how many people we want in our crowded little island, how many people are good for Britain, or how many Britons are good for the world. And you also, in your nation, you've never had a debate like that. You have no population policy. Students, I would put this to you. In your country, you now have 270 million people. If we extrapolate trends and practices of the last few decades, then by the time you are my age, 
your country will have well over 500 million people, twice as many. Is that really what you want for the United States? Or how about stopping at say 350 million? Or maybe even stopping at what you have today, 270 million. Think about it. This could be one of the most important factors in your future and yet your country has no formal public discussion of it at all. Now in Britain, we could get down to zero population growth, which I think is a minimum step we should take as urgently as we can. We could get there, not through draconian taxes on a third child, although we do subsidize a third child, which is ridiculous. And we don't need to have the government beating on the bedroom door to get down to zero population growth. All we need to do is to implement the simple expedient of eliminating half of all unwanted births. And that will be a win-win situation. It will be good for the parents concerned because they wouldn't have an, un an unwanted child. Obviously be good for the child, so, so to speak, the unwanted child. And it'll be good for the economy because it would mean so many fewer welfare payments. We come out ahead on several different fronts. Unfortunately, we do not yet uh, do that. Let's, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, about uh, Britain's environmental, Im sorry, population impact through our profligate use of fossil fuels. Well, let's just have a look at uh, some other countries. Carbon emissions per capita from fossil fuel burning. And here I see that the United States, still the United States, is in a class of its own, almost five and a half tons per person per year. Russia, three and a half, Germany about three, Japan 2.3, Britain is about 2.5, the world average is slightly over one, There's even China rapidly developing as it is only 0.7. Why is the United States in the class of its own? Well, it's primarily because of your love affair with the car culture, or rather your love affair with uh, exceedingly cheap gasoline. Here we go. Uh, you're paying about a dollar a gallon. And uh, every time I come to this country, I, I read in newspapers about how Americans can't believe why gasoline shouldn't be cheaper. And yet, you know, gasoline is now cheaper than bottled water in the supermarket. It costs you less than at any time since you started to dig the stuff out of the ground a hundred years ago. And yet Americans, some Americans still say it's, it's far too high. Now note here, Canada pays uh, over one and a half dollars a gallon. Canada's a big country, people have to travel a long way, as in your country, but they, they don't mind uh, paying more, and Germany uh, pushing 2.5, in Britain it's about uh, $3.5 a gallon, uh, Japan 3.5, Italy is paying $4.5 a gallon. And yet, all of those countries are failing to pay what the economists call the full social cost of burning a gallon of gasoline. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, there are the costs of uh, building the roads and maintaining them. Okay, you pay a car tax, a road tax, and that just about takes care of the roads a bit. But then there's all the immense pollution. You know, emphysema and uh, particulate matter and acid rain and urban smog and now global warming, all kinds of costs, none of which are reflected in the cost of a gallon of gasoline. And then there's traffic congestion, all those people sitting for hours every, every day instead of being at the workplace and being productive. And then there's the cost of that military task force in the Persian Gulf that's been sitting there for the last 30 years. Not just when Saddam Hussein acts up, it's been there for 30 years. 
to ensure that the flow of oil tankers uh, remains, remains secure. The costs of that military task force are paid for by the taxpayer. Why not by the motorist, by the person who benefits? If you were to pay what the economists call the full social cost of burning a gallon of gasoline, you certainly wouldn't be paying one dollar a gallon, nor three, nor five. You'd be paying somewhere between seven and eight dollars for a gallon of gasoline. That is the extent to which your nation and my nation is taking a ride on lots of other people other than the motorists who buy the, who buy the gasoline. And moving on. I wouldn't like you to think that I'd come to your country and make all these critical remarks without telling you of some of the goof-ups on the other side of the Atlantic. Do you recognize this? It's a composite satellite photo taken at three o'clock in the middle of the night. There's Britain, here's Spain, Italy, awful lot of electric lights burning there. This here is the Persian Gulf, and that's not electric lights burning, that is the uh, oil wells flare, it's, it's gas, the flared gas of the oil wells being burnt, and that, that really makes no, 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 not much difference at all, even though it produces a lot of light. Have a look at all these lights here. Three o'clock in the middle of the night, all those lights burning. It had been calculated that we could switch off 90% of those lights, and the loss to human welfare would be zero. Who needs lights in the middle of the night? For sure, we, we need a few lights, we need street lighting for security, but all those lights there, virtually all of them, are for shop windows and advertisements. And who's going to look at them at three o'clock in the middle of the night? Now, if we were to switch off those lights, bearing in mind it would result in no depletion of human welfare, whatever, uh, we'd have less uh, acid rain and less urban smog and less global warming. And of course, we put money into our pockets. When you switch out a, an unnecessary light, you save money. Again, it's a win-win situation. We come out ahead on several fronts. You might say, well, if it makes so much sense in several different ways, why don't the government switch out those lights? And I have no good answer to that one. The only answer I've ever heard is that too many of those governments are Marxist. Not Karl, but Groucho. <laughs> so much for fossil fuels. Let's broaden the uh, picture a little bit and lo look at uh, consumption generally. The rich world's share of world population is 22%, but because of our consumption patterns, our share of world industrial waste is over 90%, and our share of carbon dioxide, CFCs that deplete the ozone layer, and other major pollutants, well, could about 80%. During the 1990s, there will be 58 million additional northerners, that is, people in the developed nations, and they will pollute the world more, and this is macro of macro pollution. I'm not just talking about local urban smog or acid rain, I'm talking about uh, global warming or depletion of the ozone layer, kinds of pollution that, that will affect people far and wide. These 58 million will pollute the world more than the 915 million exosouthners. That puts further perspective on the population stroke consumption situation. Now here are a couple of maps, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sure you, you are thoroughly familiar with the uh, numbers behind these maps. I'll show you this because it's a bit of a graphic way to uh, further uh, indicate, present the point. The top map where we live, that is how many people there are, and here we are, how rich we are, that is who's doing all the consuming. And in the top map, you'll see that North America and South America are about even Stephen, as you'd expected, more or less the same number of people. Britain, pretty tiny. 
this huge blob here is sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa, of course, the scene is dominated by India and China, as you would expect. There is Australia, so tiny you can hardly see it at all. But let's have a look at this map. And of course, the Americas are massively uh, overshadowed by the United States. Britain is pretty predominant, and so is Western Europe. Here is Africa, about the size of Sicily. That's the whole of Africa. That's the amount of consumption going on there. Uh, India, pretty tiny. China as well, though China's uh, catching up pretty swiftly. Here's Australia, a great deal bigger than up there. And of course, uh, Japan overshadows everything in, in the Far East. And the further one uh, on the consumption question and how far it is sustainable at all, this would suggest that it is, it is eminently not sustainable. In fact, we are already bumping our heads against the ceiling uh, pretty severely. Can you read that at the back? Okay. But this slide, again, tells the truth, but not the whole truth. It does, it does not take any account of the role of technology. And technology could, could make a very big difference indeed. We could make much more efficient use of natural resources and goods and services of our one planet. We, we, could, do, do, we, we could go a lot, lot further to accommodate our present population at acceptable levels of living on our one planet, provided we used uh, more of the technologies that are already available, and provided we put suitable uh, financial and fiscal incentives in the way of those people who developed new technologies to tackle some of these problems. But unfortunately, and as you'll see in a few moments, subsidies tend to go the wrong way. The subsidies tend to uh, support inefficient lifestyles or inefficient uh, ways to run our economies instead of doing what they should be doing. Let's move on. Uh, and another way to look at uh, the problem of consumption in the future. Suppose we continue with present patterns and practices. We don't need to. There are lots of ways out of this one. But to continue with present, practice and present uh, practices will be in a, will be in a mess. Uh, the green line represents a low population growth rate with constant consumption. That is, no increase in consumption at all. The yellow line is a median uh, projection of population growth, and so the consumption would well, double. Uh, and this represents a high uh, population growth rate scenario. Uh, consumption would increase, uh, I think, 3.3 times. Yes, uh, assuming constant per capita consumption, that is no advance, no increase at all, then just because of population growth, we can expect during the next century an increase of between 1 and 3.3 times of the 1998 level of consumption. But uh, during this century, the United States has achieved an average annual increase in consumption of about 3%, which has been pretty good. Suppose that in the future, and uh, considering the entire world, suppose we say not 3%, but 2%, and uh, allowing for some population growth. Uh, this is, with increasing consumption, 2% per year, uh, consumption would increase by about eight times over 1998 levels. That's a huge increase. And if you look at the uh, high population growth rate here, then we'd be talking about, uh, well, as part of 20, 27 
uh, times increase in consumption. And plainly, if only, if only because of our consumption of fossil fuels, we cannot go into a future where we'll be consuming uh, 27 times as much. For one thing, that there's not, no, not enough oil to, to allow for that, not by a long, long way. And for another thing, the, uh, the pollution it would cause, especially through global warming, uh, will, will be quite intolerable. And, and when I say quite intolerable, that's not a rhetorical phrase. Uh, I've read from a good number of climatologists that that kind of a scenario uh, would leave the climate warmed up so severely and so rapidly that it would start to threaten the capacity of human life to tolerate an increase in temperatures of, of that order. So, moving on. Instead of the rabbit cartoon, perhaps this is a more realistic as well as fairer way to represent the population stroke consumption uh, situation. And what can we do about it all? What shall we do? There are lots of uh, policy responses. Uh, some of them are pretty obvious. We'll just go down these quickly. First one is expand eco-technologies. I'll give a few illustrations of, of that in a moment. Next one, get the prices right, e.g. gasoline or petrol. We should be paying between 7 and $8 for a gallon of gasoline at the pump. And if we did that, then boy, we'd find lots of reason to leave the car at home to go and catch the bus or the train or get out a bicycle or walk or do more work at home. And of course, if gasoline were increased to, uh, to $7-$8, that would open up an enormous market for enhanced public uh, transportation. Third one, we could swap GMP with all its inaccuracies, you know, uh, the Exxon oil, oil spill costing $3 billion and so on. Swap GMP for an index of net sustainable welfare that would give us a much more accurate and realistic uh, assessment of how, of how we're doing. Another one, reform the tax system. You know, it's, it's absurd, really, that the tax system should penalize income, our individual income, and business profits. There is a productive good things. Why penalize them? Why not penalize the bad things like waste and pollution and exorbitant, extravagant, profligate use of gasoline, activities of that sort? So that would make a big difference. And finally, uh, number five, get rid of perverse subsidies. We'll come, back, we'll come to that in a, in a few moments. But first of all, eco-technologies and how much scope is there there? Well, there's a very big market. Uh, in 1994, the market for pollution controls, waste management, recycling, energy efficiency, and so on, was about 400 billion. And that is expected to uh, reach almost 600 billion by 2001. And that will put it on a par with the global aerospace industry the global chemicals industry, uh, and it will be quite a lot ahead of the global car industry. We're, we're talking big money here. And the still better news is that utilizing eco-technology is already available. They're sitting on the shelf waiting to be put into action. We could enjoy twice as much material welfare while using only half as much raw materials and causing only half as much pollution and waste. Why aren't we using those technologies already available? Well, because the subsidy system uh, points us in the wrong direction, gives us altogether the wrong signals. You see, for instance, you know, there's a lot of eco-technologies uh, that would uh, enable us to mobilize solar power and wind power and many other forms of clean and renewable source of energy. But for every one dollar of subsidy going to support wind power or solar energy, there are $15 going to support fossil fuels, which is absurd. Because of all the externality effects, all the 
downside aspects, repercussions of using fossil fuels like grand scale pollution, we should be taxing fossil fuels, taxing them heavily. But instead of that, the government supports them to the tune of 15 times more than uh, you know, the, the much more benign energy technologies. Here's an example of an eco-technology, fluorescent light bulbs use less than one quarter as much electricity as traditional incandescents, and they last for 10 years instead of the usual two years. For sure, they, they cost a bit more when, when you first buy one, uh, two or three times more, but you, you, you'll get your money back uh, within 15 months. Somewhere in the world uh, this year, there was sold the one billionth of these fluorescent light bulbs, and that has reduced electricity needs by the output of 100 coal-fired power plants that is an enormous amount of carbon dioxide emissions saved through these fluorescent light bulbs. Just one example. <coughs> and here <coughs> are some instances of what an individual right here can, in Berkeley can do if he or she, if he or she so wishes uh, to reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Gaining five miles per gallon better mileage saves, wow, 2,000 pounds, almost one tonne in a year. And it doesn't, doesn't mean going out and buying a more efficient car, although it didn't help if you go and buy one of the sports utility vehicles. That's going in the wrong direction. <laughs> Can you believe that uh, if we were to safeguard climate from global warming and greatly reduce our uh, carbon dioxide emissions and hence our fossil fuel consumption, uh, we'd have to be limited to, I think it's about uh, four kilo, no, two and a half kilograms of uh, carbon per person per day. And that would mean that if you drive a sports utility vehicle, you could drive it for just two and a half miles, and then that'd be it. You'd have used up your carbon quota for the day, let alone other ways in which you might use, uh, car in which might, uh, uh, co uh, use fossil fuels in terms of lighting and heating in the home and so on. Just two and a half miles in your sports utility vehicle. Anyway, uh, 2,000 pounds. You can save five miles a gallon very, very easily just by driving a little bit more carefully instead of instead of rushing up to the red traffic light and then having to stand on the brake which wastes petrol just a little bit more discriminately would save uh, five miles per gallon recycling one aluminum, one aluminum can one glass bottle and one newspaper each day that saves almost 300 pounds turning off unnecessary lights in your house saves 120 pounds and of course that, that uh, puts money in your pocket as to do a lot of those other items. Well finally, ladies and gentlemen, uh, what, what are known in the trade as perverse subsidies. These are subsidies which are bad news for both the economy and the environment in the long run. I'll give you a classic example, <coughs> German coal mining. There are 89,000 coal miners in Germany and they are subsidized uh, about $70,000 per year. And those subsidies are so exorbitant in aggregate that it will be economically efficient for the government to close down all the coal mines, send the miners home on full pay for the rest of their lives, and the economy would still come out ahead. And on top of that, there'd be so much less coal-derived pollution like acid rain, urban smog, global warming, and so on for Germany. And if it makes it so much sense, you might say, well, why doesn't the government get on and abolish these uh, subsidies? Well, it's because uh, the coal mines tend to be located in, in critical voting constituencies and no politicians have had the guts to take this one on. Various forms of uh, these subsidies, overproductive agriculture, $460 billion a year, that is worldwide. 
fossil fuels and nuclear, 110. Road transportation, misuse, no use of water, most especially in the, in the California Central Valley. Overharvesting of fisheries, uh, forests and so on. Put it all together. And the total is approaching one and a half trillion dollars per year worldwide. One and a half trillion dollars. And those are funds going, by definition, into unsustainable development. Uh, if we keep on using vital natural resources like, like this, well, we can't, well, we, we can't maintain it in the long run. It'll be bad for the economy, bad for the environment. Unsustainable development. Now, you recall that at the Rio uh, Summit in 1992, a budget was presented for sustainable development worldwide. And the budget totaled $600 billion per year. And when the governments of the world assembled at Rio saw that figure, they threw up their hands and they laughed. They said, well, well that's absurd. Well, where can we possibly find money of that order? We can't possibly afford it. If they'd looked in the right place in these silly subsidies, they'd have found two and a half times more money than, than they need. But governments just didn't think to look in that direction. Now, that's the bad news. The better news is that a number of countries are phasing out their subsidies. They made a start. A notable one is New Zealand in the field of agriculture. There's not a developed nation which is more dependent on its agriculture than is New Zealand. You know, three million people and 70 million sheep used to be very heavily subsidized, but the subsidies were breaking the back of the New Zealand economy. They were phased out, and today agriculture is uh, flourishing there. Fossil fuel subsidies in Russia have been reduced by 60%, in China and India by 30%, in Britain, Spain, and Belgium by about 15 or 20%. Uh, Brazil no longer subsidizes the torching of Amazonia the way it uh, used to do. The United States is cutting back somewhat, just a little bit, on its subsidies for agriculture. This is a splendid start, but it is no more than a start. It has reduced that figure by about uh, 5%. I put it to you that if governments were to phase out even half of those perverse subsidies, that would release more money for all kinds of fiscal purposes than any other measure we can think of. It would enable most governments to get rid of their budget deficits at a stroke and to put more money than has ever been the case into health and education and other sectors of that sort. And there'd still be enough money available to throw a week-long party for the whole country and have lots of money left over. And getting rid of these subsidies would also uh, do more, in my view, than any other single measure to save our environments. We are talking big money, one and a half trillion, larger than all but the five largest national economies in the world. It is big money. Twice as large as global military spending per year. Larger than the top 12 corporations' annual sales. Larger than the global fossil fuels industry. Big money. Now, just have a look at this <laughs> with regard to the United States. A typical American taxpayer forks out at least $2,000 a year. 2000 to fund these ridiculous subsidies. And then pays another $2,000 per year in increased prices for commodities such as food or to clean up some of the environmental damage. So the taxpayers hit coming and hit going. I think that if taxpayers in this country were made more aware of these perverse subsidies, then they might put pressure on Capitol Hill to start to phase out these subsidies. Why, why doesn't Congress phase them out anyway? Doesn't Congress know about them? Well, sure, Congress knows a bit about them, but Congress is in hock to the lobbyists and the special interest groups on Capitol Hill who are 
forever agitating in support of uh, special interests like these perverse subsidies, those lobbyists spend $100 million per month in supporting uh, special interests like, like these perverse subsidies. Taxpayers of the United States uh, United have got nothing to lose but da 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 da. Well, a final slide. The political leader tells us he will lead us to the promised land, and he knows it lies over there. Well, political leaders don't always know everything quite. Uh, some of them are so ecologically illiterate, they would think a food chain is a line of supermarkets. Anyway, the political leader says, let's go over there. But the citizenry down here have a sense that environmentally things are going down the tubes and we should be going in that direction. And they also have a sense that economically, uh, well, the, the economy just isn't delivering and uh, they would prefer to go over there. Why is it that the politician isn't aware of what these people want and prefer? Why is he insisting on going over there? Is it because of basic ignorance? Or is it ignorance? You know, denial? Like that uh, line in the, in the Dire Straits pop song, denial is not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> or, or does this chap uh, listen more to the special interest lobbyists with uh, $100 million a month and listen to these folks? I, I'd like to hear from you. Well, what you think is the reason why there's this uh, dichotomy between what the politician thinks and what these people think. Could we have the lights up and a few concluding thoughts? Ladies and gentlemen, I've tried to present to you the case that within the next, within the foreseeable future, there's going to be a profound change in consumption patterns. And that will arrive, uh, well, by force of environmental circumstance, which is becoming ever more forceful, if only because of uh, fossil fuel uh, comb um, combustion and emission of carbon dioxide. Now, last year, there were more cars sold in Asia than in Western Europe and North America combined. This consumption wave is catching on right around the world. We cannot keep on consuming according to our present or our recent patterns. The change has to come. And it will arrive either by design or by default. If it's by design, it'll be, it'll be because uh, people choose it. Otherwise, it'll be imposed upon them. A change in consumption patterns sounds uh, rather a profound change, does it not? Some people say to me, you can't change people's consumption patterns. That's quite impossible. But I respond, in the last 10 years, 60 million Americans have given up smoking. That's the majority of all American adults who smoke. At the start of that period, if you wanted to be socially accepted, you would smoke. At the end of the period, if you wanted to be socially accepted, you would not smoke. It was like a social earthquake, virtually overnight. But all the same, achieving a change in consumption patterns will be difficult. After all, ever since we uh, came out of our caves 10,000 years ago, people have believed that more of anything is better, by definition. There must be better. And they've had very good reason to believe that. And, you know, until early this, this century in your country, people had a struggle to survive. And their preoccupation all day long was getting supper on the table. They wanted to consume and consume. Fortunately, that struggle has now been consigned to history in your country and in just a few other countries. People no longer battle to exist. They can afford to live a little or even to live a lot. And this is uh, my bottom line point here. 
uh, if there's anything you remember from this talk tomorrow morning when you're brushing your teeth, I, I trust that it might, might be this. Now, I do not believe that a change in consumption patterns need be at all a reduction in consumption patterns. It will be a shift to other kinds of consumption patterns. You see, the icon of the industrial age has been the motor car. Two tons of metal to get us from here to there and a lot of, wet, a lot of pollution along the way. The icon of the future could be the microchip, which can often enable us to work in our own homes, to enjoy concerts and sporting events and all kinds of things in our own homes. We shall soon be able to visit with friends over the phone, with a little television, so you know, almost like we're meeting them face to face. The microchip will enable us to do all kinds of things in our own home and eliminate the need to go from here to there in the first place. And microchips, by contrast with the motor car, use so few raw materials that the whole lot in the world can be packed into a single jumbo jet. Is that not the way we, we need to go in the future? I believe that, uh, that future patterns of consumption could be more enriching than anything we know with our present consumption patterns. When I talk with students across this country, I am struck at the number who are quite persuaded that the good life does not lie solely in piling up more and more goodies. And that nobody ever says on their deathbeds, gee, I wish I'd earned more money so that I could have consumed more. I think a lot of people in this country are prepared to uh, look to explore the prospect of uh, new consumption patterns. You know, quite a number of Americans are already headed in that direction. There are tens of thousands, especially in the Pacific Northwest, who are engaged in what is called voluntary simplicity. They go to their employers and they say, I want to, earn, uh, I want to work 10% fewer hours. And of course, I'll accept a 10% cut in salary. So they go home and they, they have more time to spend with their spouse and their children, their neighbors, their friends, more time to go fishing or to watch a sunset or to goof off or whatever. And after the first year, they like it so much, they go to the employer again and say, I want a further cut in my work hours, further cut in income. Tens of thousands of Americans are engaging in the, this kind of activity. If you want to know more in detail about all this and the, you know, the, the opportunities available, uh, go to the campus bookstore and buy that marvelous little book for $4.95 called Shopping for a Better America and a parallel one called Shopping for a Better World. They will point some directions. But uh, for the students assembled here, I would like to ask your reaction. Does this prospect of a change in consumption patterns, does it daunt you? Does it frighten you? Does it excite you? Does it attract you? Would you really like a change from what's been operative in the past? I'd, like, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to hear from you. I'm sure there's going to be uh, a very interesting and stimulating challenge for you. And as you get to grips with this uh, challenge, this super, size, super scale, so super size challenge, if you do get to grips with it adequately, I think it'll make you giants of the human condition. I do wish you much joy with it. I'd like to hear your reactions. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.